Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to the Gospel according to Mark. And we are turning to Mark chapter 10 uh, this morning. Uh, For those who are visiting with us, we have been working through Mark's Gospel uh, over the last uh, little bit. And uh, we have come to this chapter together in chapter 10. In this uh, central section of Mark's Gospel, you'll see a lot of themes uh, revolving around the idea of discipleship. Uh, What does it mean uh, to be a follower of Christ? And here in this 10th chapter, we are already seeing how those who follow Christ, it shapes the way that they think about uh, issues of marriage. And uh, here this morning, even as we think about uh, uh, children as well. This morning, we're on Mark chapter 10 and reading verses 13 uh, to 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. We learn in different ways, um, and we learn through different experiences. Uh, Sometimes we learn simply through instruction that is being given to us. We are being taught something, and we receive that instruction, and we put it into practice. Uh, It's a a very formative way of learning. But perhaps the most impressive or impressional way in which we can learn something is by correction. Uh, You may be able to think back in your own experience uh, to a time when you were corrected, Uh, for doing something wrong. Uh, Maybe it was a teacher, maybe it was your parent, and they had to uh, confront you about something and to show you that what was happening was not right, uh, that instead it was to go a different way. And then from that, there's a lasting impression that is left on you. You learn that what you were doing was something that was not safe or it was not right, and you will remember that lesson very vividly going forward. This morning, as we're turning back into Mark's gospel, uh, we are finding a situation in which the disciples are being corrected by Jesus. That the disciples were of one train of mind, only to be corrected by Jesus, uh, to realize that their train of thinking was very opposed uh, to the mindset of Jesus himself. And we want to see, as we turn to this uh, passage, that Jesus has come to help the helpless. And so we are to recognize something of ourselves as we think about the work of Jesus. You think uh, in Mark's gospel, uh, it tells us here that uh, they were bringing children to him uh, that he might touch them. Uh, We are told that there were people bringing children uh, to Jesus uh, that he might touch them. And in Mark's gospel, uh, we have encountered many instances where Jesus touched people. You think about the leper and how the leper um, asked Jesus saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus, with compassion, reached out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. Jesus healed that leper, but he did so by touch, that he, he showed compassion on the man and was willing to touch one who was deemed an untouchable. 
We are also told elsewhere in Mark's gospel of uh, people with all kinds of diseases that were being brought to Jesus. And he touched and healed them all. Uh, and when Jesus came over to the land of Gennesaret, we're told that people were carried on beds to Jesus. And as many as even touched the fringe of his garment were made well. So in many ways, Jesus touching people has been mentioned throughout Mark's gospel. He has healed many people by way of touch. But as we come to this passage this morning, there's no indication that these children were sick, that there was any physical illness that they were wrestling with or struggling with. So why then were they being brought to Jesus? And why did these people want Jesus to touch them? As one person has uh, pointed out, uh, to place the hand upon someone in connection with prayer, as is mentioned in some of the uh, parallel accounts in the gospel, uh, to put one's hand on someone and to pray over them was to invoke a divine blessing upon the person that was touched. And that we see happen in, for instance, the Old Testament. You remember how uh, Jacob uh, laid his hands on the sons of Joseph and he prayed over them. He was blessing the sons of Joseph. He was invoking God's name. He was invoking God's blessing on the sons of Joseph. It wasn't an empty gesture that Jacob was doing, but rather he was calling on God to, to bestow his favor and his blessing on the sons of Joseph. Or you think, for instance, when Moses was going to be succeeded by Joshua, Again, Moses laid his hands on Joshua. It was, a, it was a recognition that Joshua needed to be equipped with God's spirit uh, to carry on the Lord's work. And so he needed the Lord's blessing. He needed the Lord's favor. And it seems to be that's the idea that is going through these people's head, that they are wanting to bring their children, they're wanting to bring these children to Jesus that he might bestow a blessing on them because he is a man of God. And because he is one who is able to call on God to communicate his blessing to these young children. This is something that is uh, part of our, our human constitution. Uh, we're not only concerned about ourselves, but we become concerned about those who are helpless. We become concerned about children and we want the best for them as well. But scripture also teaches us that this is something that we are to expect and something that is to shape the way that we live. That we are to know that God is a God who brings his blessing, but his blessing is something that also extends even to our children. God's dealings with his people always included their children. So for instance, in the prophet Isaiah, we read these words, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah was communicating the promise that God's spirit would be poured out, but also his blessing on their offspring, on their children. And so there has always been this expectation that God would be a God not only to me, but that God's blessing would also extend. He would communicate his favor to children as well. And so here we're seeing this situation that has emerged where people are bringing uh, children to Jesus with the desire that Jesus would bless them. But this morning, as we're looking at this passage, we see the reactions of the disciples and we see the reaction of Jesus and how different they are. 
and how Jesus has to correct the disciples about what they did themselves. And so we want to think about it in those two thoughts. We want to think about the reaction of the disciples very briefly and then the reaction of Jesus. In verse 13, it tells us that when they were bringing the children to Jesus, that he might touch them, the disciples rebuked them. The disciples uh, were not uh, passive to what was happening. They saw something wrong with what was happening. And so they were going to intervene. They were going to get in the way. They were going to prevent these children or hinder them from coming to Jesus. And you'll notice it doesn't tell us why the disciples find fault. Uh, We're left trying to make sense of their actions. But at the very least, it seems that they thought it was inappropriate that Jesus uh, is a busy man, that Jesus has many things uh, that he has to deal with, and that he has more important things to deal with. And so here these disciples seem to think that it is wrong for these children to be taking up Jesus's precious time. Uh, There are more weighty matters before him. And so uh, they intervene. But the whole mindset of intervening here is really reflecting an attitude, doesn't it? That these children don't have the right to come before Jesus. These children aren't worthy of Jesus's time, whereas other people are. That there are other people that do deserve Jesus's time or they're more worthy of his time. And so there is at least this attitude of elitism that is coming out here. That there's a difference between who should be able to come to Jesus and who shouldn't. And so we are told that these disciples are rebuking the action of these adults in bringing children uh, to Jesus. So the disciples uh, don't see this as something commendable, but rather something that should be stopped. But then we see the reaction of Jesus. In verse 14, Jesus reacts in three ways. First, he reacts uh, in terms of his displeasure. It says, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Or as the King James puts it, he was much displeased. Uh, Jesus became angry. Um, Jesus didn't see this as something neutral. But rather, he saw what was happening as something wrong. And because of that, Jesus became angry. Anger is not necessarily wrong. Um, Oftentimes our anger is sinful and is wrong, but oftentimes we have to uh, qualify what we think about anger. Uh, Anger isn't something that we're simply trying to get rid of in our life. Anger is simply a register of what we value. Anger is expressing what is urgently desired in a situation. And so anger is communicating what you value. It is communicating what is important to you. And so when something is happening that is wrong, our anger is actually communicating what we think is important and what needs to be done about it. It's not necessarily sinful. Jesus here can become angry with his disciples and not sin. Even the Bible tells us that God who reveals himself as a God who is merciful and gracious also says that he is slow to anger. It's not something that is natural to God. It is not something that is innately within the character of God. It's something that is provoked by sin. But it doesn't deny that God can be angry. 
And so in the same way as we think about sin, uh, as we think about anger, we need to simply slow down and to say anger is communicating something. It's revealing what is important to you. And here, Jesus becomes angry because something is important to him that is being uh, challenged or is being obstructed. Why does Jesus become indignant with his disciples? It's because he sees something in their attitude. He sees something in what their attitude is conveying. That in in, uh, opposing uh, these little ones from coming to Jesus, they were essentially embracing uh, a, a categorization this mindset that, that not all people ha- are on the same plane. That there are some that are more worthy than others. That there are some that deserve a, uh, an access, whereas others don't deserve that ability to approach Jesus. Uh, so there's that uh, elitism that Jesus here is confronting in his disciples' attitude. But also he's angry because he sees something in what their actions are actually doing. In preventing these children from coming to Jesus, they're actually obstructing the intention of God's grace. You remember when uh, Jesus asked the question, he said, who do people say that I am? And then afterwards, Jesus asked the question, but who do you say that I am? And it was Simon Peter who answered by saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for these things have been revealed to you. But then when Jesus spoke about his own persecution and suffering, Peter objected to that. He rebuked Jesus for talking in such a way. That's not the path of the king. And then Jesus had to tell Peter, get to, to Satan, get behind me. Because he said, your thoughts are not on the things of God but rather on the things of men. Peter wasn't looking at the situation according to God's ways. He was looking at the situation on the basis of how he thought things should go. He was asserting what he thought would be the right way. And Jesus had to override that. He had to correct Peter and say, no, you're not thinking right. You're not thinking according to what God has planned and intended. Well, here the disciples as a group are in that same boat. The disciples aren't looking at things right, and Jesus himself has to correct them. Because what they're doing is ultimately obstructing the purposes of God. That Jesus intends to bless people, and the disciples here are actually trying to prevent that. You think of sometimes uh, the need to override or to correct uh, is based on what is developing. Maybe you've had the experience of driving, And you come to a traffic light, uh, and maybe the lights are flashing, or maybe the light says uh, red. Maybe there's construction going on, and there's either a traffic controller or a a police officer, and they're there overriding what the traffic light says. They're trying to help you understand how to respond rightly, that you need to live in light of what they're telling you by their authority. And Jesus is doing something similar here, that these disciples who are saying, I don't think this is the way it should go. I think we should assert some people should come to Jesus and others can wait. And Jesus here is insisting that what they're doing is obstructing the work of God. So here, uh, Jesus's anger is, is, it is uh, justified. It's not a sinful anger. It's not uh, an unrighteous thing that Jesus is doing. 
He's expressing his love in his anger. That sounds strange to our ears because sometimes we might think of anger as explosive. But anger is simply revealing what's important to us. And Jesus was thinking these children are important. And the work of God is important. And the attitudes of men and women are important. And we need to live in light of God's ways. And so Jesus' anger is really a desire that his disciples would come to realize how faulty their mindset was. That they're on a different wavelength from what Jesus himself is doing. They're creating an elitism. And Jesus is saying that all people are in need of God's blessing. So when we think about anger, we shouldn't simply rush to the, uh, the end of thinking, I just have to get rid of my anger problem, or I just have to get rid of anger in my life and become passive, where I just don't get upset about anything. Uh, that's not biblical either. Rather, a biblical response is simply by stopping and saying, anger is telling me that this is important to me. And the first thing that we should do when we are angry is ask ourselves, what is so important to me? And then we ask the question, is it right that I'm angry about this? And am I handling this anger in a way that honors God? Or is it something that has become unbalanced or imbalanced itself? Here, Jesus' passion, his anger, is directed to the glory of God. And it is one that is expressed in love. So his first reaction to his disciples is of being indignant or of being much displeased with them. They're on a different wavelength than he is. And so he has to uh, intervene. Jesus himself does not remain passive. But the second thing that Jesus does in his reaction is he not only is indignant, but he corrects the disciples. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus here is uh, wanting to help the disciples to see uh, uh, the, the way forward and to live according uh, to his, his uh, teaching. And the same can be true of us even today. Uh, the church shouldn't adopt a mindset that simply thinks of children present, uh, but we're passive towards them. Uh, we shouldn't think that the gospel is only for them when they get older. Uh, that they don't need to worry about anything until they become adults. Rather, we should see that all people stand in need of God's grace and that the church should come around one another, believing that we are to be supporters uh, and ministering servants of God's grace one to another, that we all stand in need uh, of God's mercy. And so we shouldn't uh, simply uh, uh, have the attitude, well, kids will be kids or it doesn't really matter until they get older. Rather, we should see that we are to be uh, intentional about setting before them the gospel. But when Jesus says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus is correcting our way of thinking as well. How should we think about children? And John Calvin, the French reformer, uh, says this, he shows that it shows that Christ receives not only those who are moved by a holy desire and faith to freely approach him, but those who are not even yet of age to know their need of his grace. 
These children aren't coming to Jesus even of their own volition. They're not coming of their own choice. They're being brought to Jesus. In Luke's gospel, it tells us that they're babies. They're being carried to Jesus. And what Calvin is celebrating is is that even these children who don't even know their own danger are still being brought to Jesus. And Jesus says, that's good. Even though they don't understand, they are people who are still helpless and in need of God's grace. And so Jesus is correcting the disciples, saying this is not an empty thing. This is not a waste of time. Jesus is saying this is something that should shape the way that we think about the kingdom of God. So he, he first he challenges them with his, his reaction of being displeased. But then he also corrects them by saying that the kingdom of God belongs to them precisely because they have nothing on which they can claim to deserve it. It is an act of God's grace. Notice how Jesus goes on. In verse 15, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The wording there is very strong. Those who do not receive it like a child shall never enter it. Now, there have been different ways of understanding those words. And it has been common in many circles to think that Jesus here is highlighting a a particular virtue that characterizes children. It has been mentioned uh, the child's spontaneity or a child's innocence or a child's purity is what Jesus is uh, grasping at here. But it doesn't seem that Jesus is referring to any of those things in his language that unless one becomes like a child, they shall not enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because Jesus doesn't actually identify what virtue would be characteristic of a child. But more than that, when you start to tease it out, the logic of it, if Jesus was saying that it's the child's spontaneity or the child's purity, well, those things aren't characteristic of the disciples themselves. The 12 disciples aren't marked by an innocence. You remember those 12 disciples were arguing about which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Who could be closest? Who would sit at the right hand of Jesus? They're not marked by a purity of desire. These disciples are sinners. And so the standard that Jesus is saying for the entry into the kingdom of God is not some sort of innocence or spontaneity. Well, what is Jesus getting at when he describes unless one becomes like a child, one can never enter the kingdom of God? He's talking about what constitutes a child. They are helpless. That is their objective state. They depend on others to care for them. And Jesus is saying, unless you understand that you're helpless, you can't enter the kingdom of God. That unless one realizes in a child their helplessness, that you yourself are like that before God, you won't understand your need of grace. And it's only as we understand our helplessness that we can receive what God himself has done. The good news of the gospel is is that God's blessing is directed towards those who are helpless. The gospel is, is that God helps those who can't help themselves. And so Jesus here is highlighting for his disciples that what is happening here is important. 
because it pictures God's salvation. That, that God of his own free choice determined to bless sinners by sending his son uh, to bear the curse of sin in order to open up the kingdom of uh, heaven uh, to sinners. That God's blessing is not something that anyone deserves. It is purely of God's own choice. That the picture of helpless children being brought to Jesus for blessing becomes something beautiful because we see ourselves in that picture. It's not an empty gesture that Jesus is arguing for. He's saying it pictures the gospel. And so Jesus here is challenging the way uh, that they think uh, by correcting them. Any notion of deserving or earning a place in the kingdom of God is contradictory to the work of God's grace. The disciples' attitudes here towards these children uh, it seems to have been that they must not have been as worthy as others to take up Jesus' time. But the point is, is that none of us are. They saw the children as beneath them in terms of importance. They may not have verbally said it, but that's what their actions were conveying. Jesus doesn't need to spend time with you, but Jesus can spend time with others. Sometimes people will be so bold as to say that they deserve to go to heaven. I've suffered enough. I've done enough good deeds. I deserve God's blessing. That's pride in a nutshell. But there's a much more subtle form of pride as well. A, 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 a much more subtle form that can reap into the hearts of people when they simply presume that God would bless them. They just operate on that mindset. Of course, I'm going to be blessed. Of course, God is going to accept me, but never really reckoning with the fact that we are by nature sinners, that we are helpless in our sins, and that we need God's help, that God had to send a savior into this world, that the son of God had to come to bless sinners. And that is why Jesus here is so passionate about the disciples not intervening. This is a picture of salvation. The helpless are being brought apart from their own choice. It is a work of God that blesses and brings the favor of God to them. And so it says in verse 16 uh, that he blessed them. So Jesus' reaction, he was displeased with what the disciples were doing. He corrects them by telling them that the kingdom of God consists, it belongs uh, to children. But then in verse 16, it says, he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. To bless again is to bestow uh, God's divine favor on another. And Jesus pronounces the Lord's blessing on these helpless children that are brought to him. Baptism is one of those things that uh, many Christians are of different convictions on, uh, different uh, persuasions of conscience on the matter of baptism. And we all recognize there's nothing here explicitly about baptism. And yet, when we think about what is happening here, the logic itself lends itself to thinking about what is the place of children in God's kingdom. When we think about uh, the question of children, if we can grant that children belong in the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God consists, it belongs to children. And if we can grant that God's blessing is according to his own free choice and extends even to the little ones, 
who were brought apart from their own choosing. And if we grant that blessing in the kingdom is ultimately the end to which baptism points to, then why would we not baptize those who need God's blessing? You see, baptism is still a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of God's initiative. It's a picture of God's promise. It's a picture of the kingdom of God coming to even those who are helpless. It's salvation by grace. And as the church recognizes, we need God's blessing. It is to that that the early church began that practice of baptizing even little ones. You go back into church history and you read people like Cyprian, who in the year in the 200s wrote, because God is no respecter of persons and because his grace is universally given to all types, baptism ought to be given to adults and children and not limited to any particular age. Do you get what Cyprian is doing there? He's taking the logic of what was said there in Mark 10. And he's saying, if little children can be brought for blessing, then we should take little children and baptize them. Because God is not a respecter of persons. And we all need God's blessing. In the same way in the 300s, Basil would say, we consider every time of life, even the very earliest, suitable for receding persons into the community of faith. We shouldn't hinder people, but we should recognize that we all stand in need of God's grace. Not that baptism saves, but recognizing that it's only God's grace that saves. And we are all helpless before God's throne. So as Jesus here corrects the disciples, it's to change the way that they think. Not to have a denigrating look at others saying they're inferior to me, that they're less worthy uh, before God than me, but recognizing in a child something of ourselves. A child is helpless, and yet Jesus says that child needs blessing. And in the same way, we recognize we are sinners. We are helpless in our sins, but salvation is by God's grace. Can we celebrate and can we be amazed by God's grace, that God helps us in our sins, or are we going to be of the persuasion that acts on the principle that says, but I deserved it, even just a little bit. I was still a little bit better than others. Those are the two ways of thinking. Jesus opposed any elitism. He said, it's all by grace. And that, for that reason, Jesus says, do not hinder the children from coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about this passage, we pray, Lord, that we would ultimately be able to see how it pictures grace, to realize that uh, your blessing is not something that is earned or deserved, but that it is freely given according to your will. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, we would understand ourselves as people in need of your blessing and people who look to the Lord Jesus as the source of all blessing and favor. Go before us now, we pray in Jesus' name.